we will finish our class series on the teachings and parables of Jesus today. There are more teachings and parables than what we've covered in this series, of course. Um, as the disciple John puts it at the very end of his book, he says, you know, if everything Jesus said and did were written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for all the books. So what we've covered, though, gives us a good grounding in how Jesus uses parables and how his teaching of the crowds is different than the training he gives his disciples. The people can't get enough of Jesus. They all want to be healed. They have discussions about whether he's Elijah or the prophet like Moses, who are both prophesied to come, or whether he's the Messiah himself. But no matter what, the people know Jesus is the first truly holy prophet in hundreds of years. And that makes Jesus a real threat to the religious elite, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees have the temple and the high priesthood and the tremendous power that goes with that political appointment from Rome. The high priest has been a political appointee, appointee for hundreds of years now, um, no longer a descendant of, of Aaron, Levi, Aaron, none of that. Um, they're, they are politically appointed for their uh, influence over the people and their wealth. It's pretty much a purchased position. Caiaphas who is the current high priest, is, of course, a Sadducee. The Sadducees are rivals of the Pharisees, both religiously within Judaism as well as politically. The issue is that the Sadducees are the aristocracy. So the common people lean strongly towards the Pharisees, who concern themselves with the everyday lives of the people. The Pharisees are the ones who make rulings as to what is and is not necessary to please God. The Pharisees are accessible. They and the religious lawyers who back them up, who are uh, called scribes throughout the New Testament, are the religious authority on the ground, so to speak. They're the ones the people go to with questions. So Jesus is a huge threat to the Pharisees. The people are flocking to Jesus with their questions, not to the Pharisees. And he's not showing any sign of slowing down. In fact, his healings now include raising people from the dead. And not just any people, but servants of Roman centurions and daughters of synagogue leaders. Jesus, of course, is exhausted. After his last round of teaching and healing, he heads to his mother's home high in the hills of Nazareth, west of the Sea of Galilee. And as he always does, he goes to synagogue when the time comes and he teaches there. But the people in his local synagogue simply cannot wrap their heads around Jesus. They knew him as a kid. He's the one whose father was a carpenter. Mother is Mary, whose brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. He's got sisters still living there. How can this ordinary person they've known all his life be doing all these miracles. There's no way. 
And because they cannot let go of their preconceived notions of who Jesus is, Jesus is unable to heal very many of them. He is only able to do a few miracles, saying, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown. It's interesting how great a role we play in our own healing. I, I hope you've noticed that as, as we've gone through. This does not mean that someone who is ill doesn't have enough faith. Don't let folks twist this story. This is just saying that we sometimes put up our own roadblocks and we have the power to take them down. We simply have to let go of our preconceived notions of who God is and how he's going to heal us. At this point, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to preach and minister on their own. The story is in all three synoptic gospels, but Matthew devotes a whole chapter to Jesus' instructions to them. It's interesting to me that Jesus scatters his disciples at exactly this point in his ministry. And I wonder if he does it to protect them. You see, something terrible has just happened. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has been held for some time now in Herod's prison. He'd been preaching the good news to all the people and baptizing them as a sign of God's complete welcome and forgiveness and of the people's softened hearts towards God. John had been a fiery preacher who didn't pull any punches. At one point, he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers. <laughs> well, sometime early in John's ministry, Herod Antipas, who rules these uh, purple parts here of Palestine, goes to Rome to visit his half-brother, Herod Philip. And while he's there, he begins an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias. Herodias ends up divorcing Philip and marrying Herod Antipas and joining him in Palestine. John the Baptist calls Herod Antipas out for this and for all the other awful things he's been doing. And John keeps it up. He won't stop bringing this up. So Herod Antipas has John arrested. And he and his wife, Herodias, both want to kill him, but they can't because all the people believe John is a great prophet and they're afraid of a riot. At this point in our story, John has been languishing in prison for a while now. Finally, Herod's birthday rolls around and he gives himself a big birthday party and invites all his best buds. The wine flows, and eventually Herod calls for his new stepdaughter, Herodias's daughter, to dance for him and his guests. This guy sounds like such a lecherous man. Horrible, horrible man. Her dancing pleases him so much, he promises to give her whatever she wants. The girl, who is not named here, but in later tradition is given the name Salome, goes to her mother Herodias to see what she should ask for as a gift. Herodias sees her chance to get rid of John the Baptist without having the blame pinned on either herself or Herod. She tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
When Herod hears her request, he's not so sure this is a good idea, but he's caught. He can't renege on his promise in front of his guests. So he orders John the Baptist to be beheaded. John's head is brought into the banquet on a platter and given to the girl who brings it straight to her mother, Herodias. When they hear what's happened, John's disciples come to claim John's body. And then they go to tell Jesus that John has been murdered by Herod Antipas. It is at some point shortly after this, according to the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus scatters his 12 main disciples to minister elsewhere on their own. And I think it's because he needs them to fly under Herod's radar for a while. He also may be worried that Herod is coming after him next. And he's positioning the disciples to continue to carry God's good news to the people. Jesus calls the 12 together and gives them the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every sort of illness. Now, it's interesting that even though these guys have been his 12 main disciples for a while now, they have not apparently had this sort of authority. Jesus gives them a particular authority now in this particular situation for this particular purpose. Luke says Jesus gives them power and authority. The other gospels only say he gives them authority. And, and that actually makes sense to me. Power is what a tank has, but it should only use its power as authorized, right? A policeman may have authority to stop a tank, but he certainly has no power to do so. The disciples have always had the full weight of God's power behind them, just as we all do. We can all always get out of God's way and witness God's power at work. But now Jesus is expanding the disciples' jurisdiction in the kingdom of heaven to include performing miracles and healings. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Jesus tells them, Go only to the people of Israel, not to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, which is kind of interesting, right? He says, the people of Israel are lost sheep. Tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal those who are ill. Raise those who are dead. Cleanse those with leprosy. Drive out evil spirits. You have received freely, so give freely. Notice that the purpose of giving the disciples this special jurisdiction is so they can tell people the good news when Jesus is not with them. These healings are like God's signature on the message. They are God's signet ring. Jesus says, don't take any money with you, no suitcases, no extra clothes, just go as you are. If you do your work well, they'll be glad to support you in your need. The urgency of these instructions is another reason I think Jesus and the disciples are in imminent danger from Herod Antipas. I think Jesus is telling them, don't even go home. Leave now. Go quickly. God's going to have to provide here. I think Christians often take this instruction out of its context and apply it to all ministers everywhere in every situation. 
I don't think this is a general global command. I think Jesus and his disciples are in a particularly tight spot in the road, and Jesus is trying to keep them as safe as possible and to encourage them to persevere, even in the hardships they will encounter, even if something happens to him. He says, when you get to a town, find a person of substance and stay at their house the whole time you're there. Don't wander around. As you enter their home, give your greetings. And if the home is indeed a home of worth and substance, let your peace rest upon it. But if it turns out not to be as it seemed, then let your peace return to you. If anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet. I tell you for sure, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. You are sheep, and I'm sending you out, out among wolves. So be as prudent and as wise as serpents, but as simple and blameless as doves. Beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and flogged in the synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But don't be anxious about what you will say or how you will say it. In that hour, you will be given what to say. Whoa, there's a key phrase. Jesus says, in that hour you will be given what to say. It can be also translated in that time. That's a flag phrase, very much like our end time key phrase in that day. When you read a phrase like that, your antenna should go up. You should think, hmm, I wonder if this is marking an end time prophecy. Let's see. Jesus says, brother will betray brother unto death. A father will betray a child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated because of me, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, which, as you know, means healed, rescued, made whole. If you are persecuted in one city, flee to the next. I tell you the truth. The son of man will come before you run out of towns in Israel. Now, I find that to be an interesting statement, since clearly 2,000 years would be plenty of time for them to run out of towns. Jesus seems to be implying that he will come back before the end of their lives. He says the Son of Man will come before you have finished. And that implies that he has gone away, right? Which in turn implies that this whole passage is either Jesus prophesying or it has been inserted after the fact in hindsight. Either way, it is not long after Jesus' death that Jerusalem is destroyed. The Jews are indeed persecuted, along with many years of persecution of the early Christians by a succession of Roman emperors. As we read the rest of this prophecy, we'll keep in mind that these words seem to have been put in Jesus' mouth as an encouragement to the early church. The words are certainly consistent with Jesus' teachings and with earlier prophecies. So let's hear the rest of the prophecy. Jesus says, the student is like the teacher. If the head of the house is Beelzebub, which was a common name for Satan back then, evil, the members of the household will be evil as well. 
Don't be afraid of them. Everything hidden in the dark will be revealed. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What I whisper in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Most Bibles translate the word Gehenna as hell, but we already know it's nothing but the name of the local trash heap. But even so, this is the first time Jesus has said anything remotely scary using this word. Let's take a deep breath here and look a little more closely. First off, it doesn't say God will destroy any souls or bodies in Gehenna, only that he is the one with the power to do such a thing. That is absolutely true. And we know Jesus has made it clear that any deeds that are useless or harmful will, in fact, end up in the trash heap, Gehenna. Even people's whole lives, you know, everything they've done their whole life can be so useless that they have absolutely nothing of value to show at the end. But Jesus has never talked about throwing people away. He's talked about the people being really sorry for what they've done, filled with anguish and regret, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So I think here Jesus is reminding us that God alone has the power over what is truly alive in us. And the message is our souls are always safe because they are held in God's merciful hands. Therefore, we should not worry about our bodies being killed. Well, Jesus probably sees the look on the disciples' faces at this point because he hurries on to say, your father cares even about the sparrows that are sold two for a penny. He knows every number of every hair on your head. So don't be afraid. You are worth so much more than any sparrow. <laughs> I think the disciples are completely unsettled by John the Baptist's death. How could Jesus let that happen? And they may be just beginning to realize that they're in for a lot more than they bargained for. They still expect Jesus as the son of man, the Messiah, to raise a massive army. But instead, he's talking about them getting tried in court and flogged and not to worry about their bodies dying. Jesus says to them, if you acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge you uh, in front of my father who is in heaven. That word acknowledge is a compound word in the Greek. It comes from homo, meaning same, and logos, meaning word. If the disciples speak the same word as Jesus, they are literally acknowledging homologousing Jesus. It's a validation sort of word, and it works the other way around. The word is the word. Jesus will join them in this acknowledgement. We become part of him. We speak the same as him. He speaks the same as us. We know each other. We belong to each other. We speak and live and acknowledge the same word in the presence of God. And the converse is true as well. Jesus says, whoever denies or disowns or repudiates my words before others, so I will deny, disown, and repudiate them before my Father who is in heaven. 
And if there is any passage that makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is here now, this is it. Who we are, what we say, and how we live now is a single whole piece of cloth with who we are in heaven. In the kingdom of heaven now and the kingdom of heaven then, in the future, I imagine that to be repudiated by Jesus before God would be immediate cause for deep regret. Well, we're not quite done with this really long prophecy. Matthew collects it all in this one chapter and links it to the disciples being sent out to minister on their own. Mark and Luke break it up into bits and scatter some of this next part into other settings and other dialogues between Jesus and his disciples. So apparently, whatever original source the gospel writers were copying was widely available in the years after Jesus' death, but not firmly linked to any particular event. It is included by the three writers because it seems an important teaching to them. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. Then he quotes the prophet Micah, saying, A man's enemies are the members of his own family, sons against uh, father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That seems hard, but we know we know it to be true. In our classes, we never pass up an excerpt from an old prophecy without just going back to look at its context. So let's take a look at this passage in Micah. As it turns out, the passage begins with the prophet saying how miserable he is because there is no one righteous left in the land. No one can be trusted. And yet, Micah adds, therefore, I will wait for Yahweh. The God of my salvation will hear me. When I fall, I will rise again. Even when I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be my light. <laughs> that echo of the original prophecy is important to this prophecy that Jesus will not bring peace to the world, but a sword. It is a sort of justice that Jesus is bringing. Justice that sets all things right. Evil will not continue in peace. The God of our salvation will hear us. God sees us even when our entire family is against us. Yahweh will be our light. We're going to skip verses 37 through 39 in Matthew and look at them when we get to the place uh, where Luke includes them because it, it makes a little more sense in that context. So we're skipping to verse 40 where Jesus finishes up by telling the disciples, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me too. And they are also welcoming God who sent me. Those who welcome a prophet Receive the same reward the prophet receives, says Jesus. And those who welcome a righteous person receive the same reward the righteous person receives. And anyone giving even a cup of water to my disciples, my little ones, they too will receive their reward. And so, with Jesus' warnings, the disciples pair off and scatter with nothing more than the clothes on their back. Despite the danger, the disciples go out carrying John the Baptist's words of repentance 
and Jesus good news of God's favor, and they heal many, many people. Rumors, of course, get back to Herod, and Herod begins to wonder if there really might be something supernatural going on. Is it possible that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead? Or that he is the promised prophet Elijah? If you notice, Jesus' ministry is shifting. He began by announcing the year of the Lord's favor towards all humankind. And this announcement has been accompanied by lots and lots of individual healings to prove that Jesus is truly speaking the words of God. Then Jesus gathered disciples and appointed the 12 leaders among them and spent time training them how to become the sorts of people who actually could bring light into the world. Jesus then begins teaching the people, the people, the crowds, using parables. And his miracles begin to reach beyond the individual healings. He begins raising people from the dead. He begins to speak to the wind and the sea and the, and the elements obey him. As a result, the people are flocking to him instead of the Pharisees and the scribes. The danger increases for all those spreading this good news. John the Baptist is beheaded and Jesus gathers his disciples, gives them the authority to heal, and sends them away until things cool down a bit. And now, Jesus' miracles are about to become even larger in scale. Although individual healings certainly continue, his miracles will begin to affect large groups of people at a time. The focus begins to change from individual healing to the question of who is Jesus really? Is he the Messiah, the king prophesied to come to Israel's aid in her time of need? Or is he just another prophet like John the Baptist? And so our next class series is going to focus on the question of who is Jesus really? And we'll follow Jesus' adventures as the people of Palestine wrestle with this question. Jesus packs a whole lot into his instructions to his disciples as he sends them out. And we're going to look at that a little closer in our breakout groups. This is another one of those times where we could talk for days. There are five questions. Take a moment to skim through them. And each of you share what pops out as meaningful to you personally. Try to make sure everyone gets a chance to share. Well, there you all are. Hello, hello, and welcome back. What questions did you pick? Well, we tried to tackle all of them, and one of Oops. them we were like, let's come back to this one. <laughs> um, and that was number three, just to shed light on the questions you've had about miracles. And we had just started uh, number five, and we didn't get to finish. Gotcha. So tell me about some of the ones you did get to. We worked on number one and two, and then we started to work on five and didn't get to finish it. But I don't have the clarity of recollection. Maybe I'll call on Marlene. <laughs> Shirley was in the middle of writing uh, uh, some thoughts about question five and then accidentally hit the wrong button and left. 
So no, Shirley, did you I was just reminding you guys that um, you said you wanted to talk about five. Well, uh, why don't we go? Since everybody was kind of had five on the mind, let's go there. Question five was Jesus tells them, don't worry whether you succeed or fail. If they don't listen, this will be remembered on the day of judgment, which, as you know, is when God sets all things right. And don't worry if you should be tortured or lose your life. That's what always happens to people like you and me and those who have gone before us. What are the implications of this for us as Jesus followers? That makes me uncomfortable. I expect it made the disciples uncomfortable too. This is not what they thought he was going to say. Right. Yeah. And I don't think it's what Christians think Jesus is going to say. Jesus is supposed to just come save us and right. pull us out of here, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. The don't worry if you're tortured or lose your life, because that's what happens to us. It's like, um, what? <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. So I think it helps us um, rest in suffering. It's the beauty of the cross. It's joy and sorrow held together. Um, and to me, this one was not upsetting to me. It kind of gave me another lens um, scripturally into when we suffer in our own lives, you know, we, if we're followers of Christ, we hope for that ultimate peace and new life and resurrection. And it, it, to me, it, it, this is very, I really like this one. I'm glad you added it. I, I, cause I thought this is how we hold suffering when it's in the midst of our own lives. Um, and it's not fearful to me. I, if I follow in the way of the cross and believe in resurrection and new life, um, we know the end of the story. I mean, we, and that to me helps me stay a little more focused when I want to be very human and set my hair on fire and run screaming in the streets, you know, that why isn't God saving me from this? I'm being facetious, but yeah. Totally. It, it, it is, it is knowing for sure that death never has the last word ever. Yeah. I saw an external and an internal component to this as well. In that sometimes we move and, and we meter our responses and our behavior based on how others are receiving us. And I see that for me, what he's saying is you need to know in your heart of heart that what you're choosing is all that matters. It doesn't matter if your across the street neighbor doesn't believe you, you know, whatever. I, mean, I just saw an external and internal component to it. And maybe that's just off base, but. What do y'all think? I think that makes sense. Um, because it is hard many times to have what you have to share or say be mocked, negated, refused, rejected, and then being rejected yourself. Um, when you feel that what you're speaking is truth. 
And then if you take that farther out, um, it could go as far as in some situations leading to torture and death. How does the good news lead to torture and death? If we are the light, you know, if we are participating in the light and our message is good news of God's favor for everybody, if we share what we have been given so freely and we hold all of this with a loose hand and don't get in between people and God, you know, we let God be God and we stay humble. How does the good news, how does that lead to torture and death? Well, that's a huge threat to people in power. That's what I was going to say. People fear it. They don't understand you. I think when people don't understand what you're saying, or like you said, the power issue, that leads to making the other person wrong because I don't understand. And when you're used to darkness, light hurts your eyes. Say it again. When you're used to darkness, the light hurts your eyes. In other words, those who are in the darkness want to fight against the light because it hurts them. Well, it reveals, right? Can't get away with anything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the light is the ultimate in what makes us humble. We have to be transparent if we're going to stand in the light, right? Repressive. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Well, repressive regimes like, say, Russia don't want Christianity to be widespread because they want to have all the authority. They want to have all the fans. They don't want uh, God in their country. Yeah, that that I was I was kind of riffing in the same direction, um, Brian. When you look at what's happening in the increasing number of totalitarian regimes around the world, where in Israel Netanyahu's trying to take over the judiciary, and that also happened in um, Hungary. Um, where where he just abolished the court and put his own people in. Um, anyone who is going to stand up and speak truth to power is a threat to that power. And therefore, if you want total control, you have to eliminate anyone who is going to say, no, you're wrong. This is the truth. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well said. What were the what were the scenarios when Jesus had harsh words to say? What what were the elements of a situation? It seems to me that that when Jesus Jesus generally spoke to the people with such love and openness and what can I do for you is is the message. It's like standing there with God's resources behind me behind you saying what can i do for you that is what we're called to do but sometimes spoke out against the people who who tried to control the people the the religious leaders who told them you're doing you know you must do it 
this way. There is no, you know, you can't freely express your your worship of God in any way other than the way that we tell you. Right. Yeah. It seems like when Jesus, and certainly John the Baptist with his brood of vipers, you know, and Jesus is going to say that too in a minute, but um, <laughs> it was, it seems to always be directed at people who are standing in God's place and are not saying, God wants to give you absolutely every blessing possible. Let me, what can I do to help? You know, it's the people who are standing in God's place and saying, oh, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't go back there. That's been locked. I got the combination. I might give it to you, you know, but even in both of those scenarios, um, This touches back on, which question was it? Mm, 1B, about being white saviors, you know, Mm. that even if we are standing there with all God's resources saying, it's all for you, (laughs) what do you want, you know? Um, it seems to me the agency, we have to let the agency reside in the other person, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, that's not what I was raised on when I was told to go out and share the good news, right? What's the typical model, right? Right. right. That's my breakdown over fishers of men, yes. <laughs> it's a very different paradigm. Yes, it is. It's a paradigm of listening. We have a ministry of listening. Jesus listened to the people. We have a paradigm, a, a ministry of seeing. Jesus saw the man at the pool of Bethsaida who had been ill for 38 years. That's very different than going out and beating people over the head and telling them they got to be saved or they're going to hell. Right. Right. Meeting people where they are. Yeah. Listening to them. And I kind of learned that one from you. You, I was struggling with something and you and I were having a conversation and we ended up with that kayak in the water scenario. And you were like, okay, if they're struggling. Yeah. That really was very transformative to me. You know, people almost always only need us to come alongside them. We, we get, we can reframe this. They're almost always struggling with somebody like a Pharisee or some belief like a Pharisee that is preventing them from accessing God, you know, that is just keeping them guilt-ridden, you know, keeping them um, feeling like they, that, that they can't get to God, that this can't be true, you know? That's that's where we do our work. So there were some um, other other uh, questions on here. Which one do you want to do next? Number, hmm? number three. Number three. The miracles. miracles. <laughs> the message is 
that we are saying is the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's what Jesus told his 12 disciples to go out and say. Just tell them God's right here, right around the corner. It is here. You're not looking for something way far away. It is here. The kingdom of heaven has drawn, already drawn near. They are to back this up, this message up with healing, raising the dead, purifying people of leprosy, driving out demons, etc. inner and outer healing in the broadest possible sense. Jesus says, give freely as you have received. Jesus gives them the authority, the jurisdiction, which is not the same as the word Greek word for power, in order to do this. Does this shed light on questions you've had in your own life about miracles? In that question, I, I, I have a question about the question. Okay. Um, do you mean the miracles as listed in the Bible or pe modern people who are miracle workers? I'm I'm specifically thinking of Christians wrestling with why can't I do miracles? Why aren't there miracles in my life? Where did the miracles go? If I there don't see these miracles, how can there how can God be real? There are miracles. They're small. You have to see them when they happen. We had one this week or last week. My youngest son's vehicle caught on fire out in the middle of nowhere on a country road. Mm -hmm. And he got out of the car and took a picture and tried to get a hold of us and everything. And then when we went to bed that night, he got a ride home. And when we went to bed, it was like, shoot, the car's a loss. It's totaled. But thank goodness he wasn't blown up. And we recognized that miracle right then and there you know you have to know when they're there because bad things happen but it can be so much worse and i i agree i love you know that looking at the miracles i guess i took the question more of things like you know these revivals where people walk up and they're like go away you're healed and they don't have the jurisdiction to do that they have not been given god's resource to raise someone from the dead that then alternatively but he gave us the brains to develop medicine that we can shock people back into life i don't know where does that where does it all fit what do y'all think has anybody done the course in miracles have you ever done that it's it's a book about this big and my husband and I did it for like 11 years every week. And um, it's because our life goes on. And, you know, just with the good news, I can read things and they change next week that I read in the good news of the gospel. But the point of all that was it um, was not a book sanctioned by the Catholic Church. It, it's very metaphysical, but it's Christ-centered and Bible-based. It's, you know, anyway. People would say to me, okay, so did you get to the answer of, it's called A Course in Miracles. Did you get to the answer of what a miracle is? And what they talk about in this book, which resonated with me, is that the miracle is that we don't see faith through the lens of atonement. 
what we need to do is look at the word as at one That The miracle is we are never separate from our God. We create this thing that we have to get back to him or to her or how creator or birth or however you name it. But the reality is it's the kingdom of heaven now. It's in me now. Christ is in me now. My job is to recognize the Christ in you. And then that is a miracle in itself. It's it's a healing. It's a, you know, it's just another way into, because I struggled with everything we talked about in our group. You know, I, there's a wonderful Peter Mayer song, Everything is a Miracle. And if you come from that lens of that beautiful song, we this miracles all around us. I can turn the water on. I I can walk. I get you know. I mean that's kind of little um, woo woo, but it's but it, the truth in it too is they're not. I mean it's. I used to say, well, what? How do I define a miracle? What does it mean? What does it look like? What is it? Well, it's God's presence, and we are never separate. Never, ever, ever. Yeah. So let me ask a question. Um, How were miracles used in the ministries of Jesus and the disciples? What was their purpose? Well, you talked about it early on as God's billboard saying what what Jesus is saying is true and has my blessing and has my power and so listen to his words when you see what he can do. And so I'm wondering if that still applies to us. I'm wondering if the Holy Spirit puts us in a place where we're speaking to someone who does not know God and they need to hear in a particular way whatever that billboard might be for them I'm wondering wouldn't God step up with that billboard I know I have a friend that's agnostic or atheist I'm not sure which but she often has questions about Christianity and will ask me my interpretation same with her son but mostly my ministry to her is my actions and the way I behave and treat people around me and treat her and the way I respond to situations It's not so much that I preach the good word to her or anything. I I wait for her to come to me because she does. And it's a good relationship. And I don't know if it's going to change her reviews, you know, and, and actually I've heard things that make me sad, which is, you know, the way Christians behave usually, blah, blah, blah really puts me off and I'm hurt by that and I can't say how many times I've heard it not only from her but from other people and my goal is to not be that person that puts someone off 
I may not always have the blessing for someone. I know I've been blessed by others by doing the same thing. But I don't want to hurt someone's faith. We can't hear you, Shirley. Oh, there you are. Okay. I'm able to see a miracle happen around this. Well, maybe lots of times, but the particular one. I hate this because I can hear myself on Brian's computer and it's like echoing my head. Um, I was at a service that was huge, like 10,000 people. And oh all of the people just right around where this happened witnessed it, but it was told to all of us. There was a person who had asked if um, he could know how to be saved. He wanted, he wanted to know about salvation. And there was an, another person who also happened to be a missionary who went to talk to him. However, they did not speak the same language. This man did not speak English. The missionary spoke several languages, but not the language of this man spoke. There was nobody around to translate. The man spoke English. The other man spoke his language. And at the end of it, he understood salvation. And everybody who saw it was just in awe because they were not speaking the same language. And yet, they both understood each other. Now, if that was not a miracle, I don't know what is. But as far as like healings and raising people from the dead and things like that, I think that we have advanced so much in science that the miracles weren't needed like they were in the past. And in addition to that, God gave the authority, or Jesus gave the authority to the disciples. God gives the authority to people to do miracles. In today's day and age, anybody who has that power would be um, judged, would be, people would be skeptical and they would try to prove them or disprove them and stuff like that. It's not the same as it was in the time of the disciples where people just saw it and went, oh, wow, it's a miracle. They don't do that anymore. Yeah, and I, I wonder if, if one of the reasons that we don't have as many miracles um, as they did then that we you know are aware of anyway is because we've gone off the rails a little and how we think about what it means and what its purpose is you know that we've gone off the rails some in how we be Christian in the world um, hmm. Marlene. Um, I don't know if we have enough time for a story. We got time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I may have told this story before. I can't remember. Um, but my parents were missionaries. And um, so when I was a kid, we were in Brazil. And my folks were with Wycliffe Bible Translators. So we were in an indigenous um, But that closed on and um, my, my older sister got sick and my mom had given her an antibiotic because that was back in the days when you could, you know, bring your own stash of medicines and you didn't need prescriptions. 
my mom gave her an antibiotic and it turns out my sister was deathly allergic to it. And um, this is where there were a series of events that came into place that you could say were coincidences, but, but we saw them as miracles of God's provision. First of all, um, normally there wasn't a doctor with a half a day's bus drive from the village, but it was right around the time when there was an election for mayor coming up. And one of the candidates, in order to sort of say, I'm gonna bring reform to the town, um, had brought in a doctor and an ambulance. Now, the ambulance couldn't take anybody anywhere. It just ran up and down the main street of the town running its sirens so everybody could see it. But the doctor opened a little clinic um, during the time. And my dad was out in the living room giving an English lesson to the, the government rep of the reservation. Um, and my mom came out of the bedroom and was telling my dad that Diane was really sick. She was really worried. She wasn't sure what was wrong, but she thought maybe she was having a medication. Um, the Brazilian man could see that there was concern on my parents' faces, but didn't understand the conversation. So he asked my dad what was going on. And my dad told him, oh, well, didn't you know there's a doctor in town? And he went to the door and he called out to some young men who were standing on, this, on the sidewalk outside our door and said, run to town, get the doctor immediately. So they took off running. In time, my parents had the presence of mind of boiling up a syringe and needle, um, thinking, you know, this was in the mid-60s, um, thinking that, you know, she probably would need a shot. And doctor came running back and went in and took one look at my sister and said, we need adrenaline now. The infirmary on the reservation, they had adrenaline. So somebody ran over to the infirmary, got the adrenaline, brought it back. The doctor was able to give my sister an adrenaline shot. And then um, my dad sat up with her all night long when she broke out in hives, head to tail. And all they had for it in those days was just rubbing her down with alcohol. Um, Next day, the doctor came back and he said, um, okay, well, we're through the, the danger part of the allergic reaction, but she is going to have damage as a result of this and is going to need to be on a special diet. Uh, vegetables, fish, chicken, eggs, no beef, no heavy, anything that's going to really overwork her liver because she's had some liver damage. And we were in a semi-desert area during the dry season. We ate dried beans, salt beef, and um, you could get chicken eggs and the occasional, but that was the diet during that. And so my parents were praying. She, my sister wasn't really strong enough to take out of the tribe to the city because it would be like a, 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 a day's bus ride to get out to the closest town that might have where they could get that kind of food. And, um, and, and that's where the second part of this came together, which was um, there, you know, we could get eggs and chicken from people in the tribe, 
But then one day, on, one of the men from the tribe showed up with a salmon. And as the rivers had been drying up, you know, as the dry season was coming, occasionally a salmon would get trapped in a pool, couldn't get down river to get to the ocean. And normally when that would happen, they, it was such a rare find that they would just build a little fire and eat it right real treat. And instead, he said, Scott, I'll bet that American family would really like to have some fresh fish. Mm. And he brought this salmon. And, and so we had fish for my sister. Um, two nights later, there was a knock on the door. And this young man came in carrying this big box. He said, the bus just came in from Garayums, which was a town up in the, in the mountains. Um, and it's for you. And my parents opened it up. And there was a letter from a young seminarian who had come out and spent some time to see the work my parents were doing. And he was going to school up in this town where they climate, moisture climate, they had a market with fresh produce. And he said, I was walking through the market today and I just had this thought, I bet this American family would really like some fresh fruits and vegetables right about now. So please accept my gifts. Uh, thanks for your hospitality. And it was full of greens and carrots and fresh fruit. And every week for six weeks, one of those boxes showed up. When the, the bus came to town on the day that there was a market up in Garingham's. And so my sister had exactly the diet that she needed during her recovery time. And then that seminarian came to visit again. And my parents told him how his gift had saved her life, really. And he was ecstatic. And he said, God used me and I didn't even know it. And that just really confirmed to him that he had been listening to the voice of God. And it confirmed to my parents that God was watching out for our family, even in this relatively remote place. That's beautiful, so, Marley. I would call that a series of miracles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure. Like you can't have that many coincidences, right? Right. <laughs> That's, those are yeah. those are real miracles. Okay. Uh, Joe, we've got just a couple bits left here. So I believe in the power of everything that we're saying here. But it's difficult for me to know what to say. I'll give you one perfect. I had an 11 year old student die of leukemia and it was his second time to have leukemia. And there were several bunches of people who laid their hands on Joseph mm -hmm. and he didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And so the next question is, why them and not us? And I don't really, I mean, God works in mysterious way is kind of a crappy thing to say to somebody who's just lost their son, you know? You can't say that. The time for theology no, exactly. is not when somebody just lost no, their son. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus here in this whole passage even as he gave them the jurisdiction to do all these miracles, including raising from the dead, 
told them you will be flogged, taken to court, tortured. Same guys. Is it, there is there is something about the this gifting um, of of these particular kind of billboards, right? These billboard healings that has a bigger purpose than just us, you know. I I I think that we are called and just my thoughts, but I think we are called to place our trust 100% in God, no matter what, even unto the death of an 11 year old child, even unto our own death, even if we can't explain it. That's where our power lies. That's where our power lies. But I think it's hard for people who've like, I've been a good Christian my whole life. And we put our hands on Joseph and nothing, you know. And so, yeah, from a distance, I can say, and people came up afterwards and said, oh, yeah, Joseph was our angel, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you can see that there was some other. Don't ever say that, by the way. (laughs) They did, though. I know they do. Right. But because there were things that happened in the background because of him. And. I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's a hard thing even for people who really believe in God to struggle with. And I'm not saying me, I'm just saying, I I hear people talk about that. And people, I know Christians who are afraid to pray for people because of that, you know, um, and they teach us in seminary, be careful when you're praying for somebody that you don't pray, you know, for healing or whatever, because of that, you just have to really be aware that your role is just to connect the person with God. Your role is to bring comfort. Your role right. is to bring the presence of God into that space together with them. You're not magic. They're not magic. You're doing it with them, you know. Mary, do you have words of wisdom for us here? No words of wisdom. What I would tell you is that I'm in the midst of a lot of wisdom. And again, this sounds patronizing, and I don't mean it to, Gail, but the questions you raise and the wisdom of the people that gather in this circle, I always leave with a new new eyes to see and ears to hear it's such because we all wrestle with it i it's it's so human and i you asked the question about you know jesus and and i i go to the woman that was accused of adultery and and the the gentle way he said you know who in this group has not sinned and you pick up a stone and you and no one did there was healing in that I there wasn't just safety for that woman you know we talked about him giving license to the apostles to go away to be safe I mean it was in that story for me that how many people walked out of that circle hearing those words relieved of their own heaviness of knowing they didn't live up to what they were called to do. I mean, it just, 
So that not words of wisdom, but just a deep voice of gratitude for you, Gail, and for everyone that spoke today and shared. And I, I just, you know, it's my father used to say, Mary Patricia Bridget, always leave them better than you found them. You know, not with an arrogance, but just know you bring your Christ self to an encounter. And, and I am, I leave better than me today so wisdom on I offer that (laughs) thank you and I think that that brings us to kind of our touchstone of humility right that 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 if we can keep our hand in the hand of humility we're not going to go far wrong here so we're gonna we are gonna have to stop I love you (laughs) there's no class next week no class next week I'm traveling and I will see you in two weeks all right Bye. Bye, everybody.